Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It's so good to be with you. Uh, my flight from California here was, was perfect, uh, though my arms are a little bit tired. Uh, flew a long way. Uh, my, my love affair with archaeology started with a flyer. It was a flyer. It was an eight and a half by 11 flyer. And at the top of it, it said, come dig archaeology with us. You can get dirty and you don't have to ask for forgiveness. Then you went down to the bottom. It says, come dig with us in Jordan. You'll dig it. You know, so I go, well, I need to go call this number. I need to be a part of this. This is great. Not only a sense of humor, I can go unearth history. Well, I get to Jordan and... I get to my hotel room, I see the safe there, and I said, well, maybe I should just take off my wedding ring and put it in there for safekeeping. It's kind of hard to do troweling and and all this kind of uh, uh, digging for two weeks. I'll put it there for safekeeping. I I shut the safe. Well, at the end of the two weeks, I went back to go get the safe, open the safe, and I looked inside. Lo and behold, my ring was gone. Well, by the time I got home... I had grown a very cheesy-looking, thin, scraggly mustache, and I was missing my wedding ring, and my wife had her hands on her hips going, oh, yeah, you went to archaeology, did you, huh? She was wondering what was going on uh, when I went. But archaeology is a passion of mine, and what I want to do to you, or to, with you today is actually convey to you some of the most significant archaeological discoveries ever made. And these discoveries link inextricably to the Scripture. And I want to ask you, how many of you know of two or three archaeological finds that relate to the Bible? Two or three. Very good. That's excellent in a crowd this size. Most people don't know one, but you are obviously very biblically literate here. You know it. Skip has done a great job in equipping you. So let's go ahead and look at why we're here. First of all, the inerrancy of the Bible. Archaeology can confirm and validate why we know the Bible has no errors in it, historically, geographically, mathematically, and so forth. Because the logic of inerrancy is very clear. If God cannot err, the Bible is the Word of God, therefore the Bible cannot err. It's simple logic. If God is perfect and He cannot err in anything He does or says, and the Bible is the Word of God then the Bible cannot err. It's as simple as that. But unfortunately, today we have liberal critics challenging the veracity of Scripture and the historical narratives that we see in Scripture. The liberals say, well, the Bible simply contains the Word of God. It's in there somewhere. We don't know exactly where it is, but they would say it contains the Word of God. The neo-Orthodox theologian under Bruner, Barth, and Boltmann, if you've heard those names, they're called the killer bees in theology. They would say the Bible becomes the Word of God only if you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, only if you encounter the words of Scripture. However, you and I as evangelicals stand out, and that makes us a target because we say the Bible doesn't become the Word of God. The Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And that's what makes us a target for Bart Ehrman and the rest. Notice Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. 
It says, you will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. And we might ask, what? Stones? Dust? Why should we show favor to the ground? Well, it's very simple. Our Lord Jesus walked on those stones. He traveled that dust. And in that dust and in those stones are artifacts that show you God's redemptive love and how far he would go to redeem a fallen mankind. Right here in the scripture. Notice also the importance of historical statements in scripture. First of all, archaeology and history can validate the biblical history. It makes the spiritual aspects in scripture believable. Now, you remember the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember the dialogue that kind of fades into a monologue with Jesus being the only one talking in the end? He said something very important to Nicodemus. He says, unless you believe me in earthly things, how will you ever believe me in heavenly things? If you can't believe me in the things you can check out here in this world, how will you ever believe me in the spiritual aspects of the afterlife, in the born-again experience, in morality, in virtue? It seems like Jesus is saying that the prerequisite for spiritual belief in things that you can't see is a belief and an acquiescence to the things that you can tangibly see and validate. In other words, none of us buy cars unless we first check it out. None of us marry our spouse unless we first know them. We go to the doctor and we uh, go home and we want to make sure that we're taking our medicine just right, in the right dosage and at the right time. Then why do we automatically change when it comes to spiritual things? Because the spiritual things have even greater impact and importance, don't they? They are of eternal significance. These other things are of temporal significance. It makes the aspects believable. If you can trust the Bible in the earthly things, you can certainly trust it in its spiritual message of forgiveness and salvation. Notice historical data helps clarify, illuminate, and give moral examples to us today. In fact, the clarity that the different artifacts that have been found have shown with very clear and a powerful light on the passages of Scripture. No longer do many liberal scholars doubt the patriarchal tradition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or the dynasties of Egypt. They still have a hiccup hiccup still with the Exodus, but even that is starting to crumble in on them. I'll show you an artifact tonight that's given them a big challenge. Notice also history tells of God's love for mankind. He left his fingerprint all over this world, especially in the ancient Near East, where when you dig daily, you can dig up coins and artifacts and jars with inscriptions and Herod's tomb and Pontius Pilate's stone with his name on it. You can still see that God is working even today. And he leaves just enough artifacts behind to give us beyond reasonable doubt to trust what is written historically and by definition, its implications spiritually in Scripture. Notice in John 3.12, I just mentioned to you this passage. It's good to reflect on it because it shows you the prerequisite for spiritual belief. If you can't believe Jesus traveled to Jericho or that the Dead Sea is down and Jerusalem is up, geographically speaking, 
you're not going to be able to give him the benefit of the doubt on the spiritual aspects of Scripture. Or how about Romans 4.25? This verse shows a powerful connection between the history of God's redemptive plan and the spiritual benefit that comes from it. Notice, he was delivered up. There is your historical statement. He was delivered up on a real cross. Israel learned crucifixion from the Carthaginians and then the Persians, and then finally Constantine outlawed it by the 4th century A.D. There was crucifixion in real time and space, and it says that our Savior was delivered up. Speaking of a real historical event, but notice the spiritual benefit that follows from it. We get deliverance from our trespasses. That's the spiritual benefit that's inextricably connected to the historical event. If you take away the historical event, guess what, guys? The spiritual aspect and benefit evaporates with it. We believe in a historic Christian faith that's rooted in real-time space history, not some theoretical machinations of a fertile Jewish mind. Notice the second thing, and raised for our justification. Notice the historical statement. Raised, that's talking about coming out of a literal tomb with his real physical body. And then notice the benefit, a right position before God. Justification, just as if you've never sinned. You take away the history, there goes the gospel message. History, reality is so very important. Nelson Gluck, a former Jewish rabbi, he wrote a book, Rivers in the Desert. He was very informed in archaeology and also converted to Christianity later in his life. Notice what he says. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible coming from the professionals. Now, a quick crash course in archaeology before we get into some of the crucial artifacts. It began as grave robbing. It began as treasure seeking, believe it or not. People wanted to get rich quick. They wanted to get the silver, the gold, go cash it in at the antiquities dealer, and that was it. However, that began to change in the mid-18th century at the Bay of Naples. There was a huge excavation that went on at the bay. Uh, Statuary, coinage, uh, building structures were all found around that bay. And it now was deciphered that archaeology could actually benefit a scientific discipline in reconstructing the past. And then the Society of Antiquaries was established. The first archaeological society in 1750, they began publishing journals and archaeology was on the rise. It was finally on the map until this magnificent discovery even put it higher on the totem pole. Notice the Rosetta Stone was found in 1799. This trilingual basalt stone was found in Egypt by Napoleon's army. In fact, one of his lieutenants, Lieutenant Bluchard, found this stone. They called the experts out. They found that it was written in three different languages, the same message in three different languages. One language was Egyptian hieroglyphic, The second was Egyptian Demotic, a script kind of Egyptian language. And the third was Greek. Well, we already knew how to read Greek, but we didn't know how to read hieroglyphics or Demotic. This stone helped us understand how to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics today. The reason why we can reconstruct all of Egypt's past, especially at the time of Moses, we know how to read hieroglyphics based 
on the translation we got from the Greek text and just plug it into the hieroglyphic text. Archaeology was paying off, in other words. It was on the rise. Notice, by the late 19th and 20th century, excavations by Paul Bada in Iraq, Sir Flinders Petrie, the Egyptologist, and William F. Albright in Israel began a archaeological endeavor that has not stopped today. In fact, many of these people were very eccentric. For example, Sir Flinders Petrie, the Egyptologist, he was from the UK. He wanted, above all things, to measure the pyramids of Egypt. They wouldn't let him. It was illegal during the time. So he found out a way to go back and measure. He dressed up in a ballerina's tutu. He had a long, white, flowing beard. And he began leaping around like a crazy man the Egyptian pyramids. What was he doing? He was measuring. The guard said, oh, that crazy old guy, let him go. You know, He was measuring, taking notes. You know, it, it, craziness does have its benefits once in a while, but 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 Flinders was was an eccentric one. Archaeology was on the rise. Today, there's over twenty five thousand archaeological discoveries to date. How many of them do you know about? These that directly relate to biblical sites. Notice what D.J. Wiseman says, a Near Eastern scholar. The geography of the Bible lands and visible remains of antiquity were gradually recorded until today more than 25,000 sites within this region and dating to the Old Testament times in their broadest sense have been located. Wow, 25,000. Notice over 30 people in the New Testament have been confirmed as valid, historical, real people that walk this earth just like you and I. 30 in the New Testament. And the list is growing. 60 from the Old Testament have been discovered. That's nearly 100 people in this book that has been confirmed by historical documentation or archaeological excavation. And the list keeps growing. Some of them major figures like John the Baptist or Herod, Nebuchadnezzar, and then others minor figures like Sarsakum and Jehokul and so forth or the sons of Emer. I'll talk more about them later. Over 60 confirmed historical details in the Gospel of John. Craig Blomberg, in his wonderful book, The Historical Reliability of John, has chronicled these 60 historical details from the Gospel record in John's Gospel, right there. He has them all documented out in the book, Historical Reliability of John. And the list just keeps going. Over 80 confirmed historical details in the book of Acts. Colin J. Hemmer. He's an amazing ancient historian who's chronicled these 80 things and he's basically shown that when the modern liberal historians got it wrong, Luke got it right. They had to have a major book-burning party in liberal circles. They had to really revise those books. You know, now you see all these liberal books coming out. 20th revised edition when the Bible stays as it is. Luke was an exceptional investigative journalist and reporter. He did not make mistakes. Now let's get into some of the artifacts and some of the more recent ones to start out with. Now you're probably familiar with the dig at Sodom in Jordan under Dr. Stephen Collins. That's a major dig that's uh, yielded some amazing finds to date. Uh, It's called Tel El Hammam. He's digging up uh, Sodom. He's at the Middle Bronze Age, the time that Sodom existed. And notice what he's finding. See the bones? There's bones scatter at the time of Sodom. All these are bones, 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 all the way through. And some of them are charred. 
lo and behold, some of them are charred. The Bible said that there was a fiery destruction of Sodom. And we would expect, if the Bible was true, that we would be seeing these things. And talking to Steve, he said that most of the people at Sodom were burnt and their their bones were shattered almost, like you're seeing here. All walks of life. They seem to have been uh, cut off about, about the waist, about right here, right below the stomach. Steve said that those the toes of these finds have been hyperflexed so far back. That means that the blast must have been so powerful in this destruction that it actually warped the very fabric and nature of the body itself. They have also discovered different contexts of uh, bones, more shattered bones here. And, you know, it's sad when we think about it. What could have been if decisions were different? Or look at this little piece of pottery that was discovered at Sodom. It looks like it's melted on top. They brought it back here to have it studied in the scientific laboratory and the scientists say, hey, nice piece of Trinitite you have here. The piece of Trinitite's on the right. The pottery's on the left. Looks very similar, doesn't it? Trinitite is uh, the kind of material that forms when like an atomic explosion goes off. You know, you know, just down the street here. I mean, the, the, the sand just starts turning to glass. It just changes its fabric. And this piece of pottery that was pulled out of there had been heated, the scientists said, at such a high degree of temperature, it was impossible to heat this pottery at the heat of the kilns back in Sodom's day. They didn't burn that hot. Thousands of degrees Fahrenheit this was. There's more evidence to substantiate what the Bible is saying, even about the most outrageous events like Sodom or David and Goliath or Balaam and his donkey. There's all kinds of artifacts turning up. Notice another discovery here, this little piece of pottery with inscriptions on it. It was found in Gath. And let me ask you, who lived in Gath? Goliath. This little piece of pottery has two Semitic names on it, but it's written in the Philistine dialect. There are two Philistine names on this little piece, and they're etymologically similar to Goliath's name. Now, this little piece was part of a bowl about this big. Maybe it was Goliath's cereal bowl. We don't know. You know, probably. <laughs> you know, but it, if he was a hero at the 10th and 9th century BC in the city of Gath, this is perfectly consistent with what the Bible has to say about Goliath in the city of Gath. The whole city has been unearthed. We went to Gath to interview Professor Aaron Mayer, who dug up the city with his volunteers. It's on the documentary. Uh, By the way, all these things are here for you if you want to pick up any of these resources. They're out here after if your hand is going to get carpal tunnel by the end of the night. Uh, uh, It's it's all on on the CDs and the documentary. But this is an amazing find, and it just was discovered a few years ago. The Emer Bulla. Now, a bulla is only about the big of a nickel. And you're looking at the backside of a bulla, and that is a clay lump with a seal impression on it. If a king had a ring, he would put a seal impression on the bulla to seal his documents or a package. This is the backside of a bulla that was found on Temple Mount. They turned it over, and what they read was amazing. They read this Hebrew inscription, and it said, The sons of Emer. Now, does anybody know who the sons of Emer were? 
Jeremiah 20, verse 1 says, The sons of Emer were the priestly family who had managerial jurisdiction on the Temple Mount area during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. It was the sons of Emer that smote Jeremiah across the face. It was them. It was the people. This makes it very personal. Yes, indeed, they lived. Jeremiah was a real prophet as well in the 6th century, right before Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. This little piece of silver is only four inches tall and one inch across. It's the oldest piece of scripture we have in the world of the Bible. It is a passage of Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26, the priestly benediction. And they would originally roll this up and wear it as an amulet to ward off evil spirits. It dates to the 600 B.C. It was discovered right there in Jerusalem. The Israeli museum took three years to unroll this thing. They thought they were going to destroy it. They did the job. Notice what it says. May Yahweh bless you and watch over you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. And from what I understand, there's only one letter difference between your Bible and this inscription. Amazing. What does that show us? It shows the accuracy of the scribal transmission or copying process down through the centuries. The book that you have in your hand is the same book that was written from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Moses. Nothing has changed. Yes, there's been scribal misspellings over the years and so forth, but the voice of God still is here. Or how about King Hezekiah? Remember Sennacherib, that evil ruler, was coming down. He was going to take over Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet says, Sennacherib, uh, I mean, uh, Hezekiah, hold on. Have faith. Turn to the Lord. And ultimately, Sennacherib was sent back home in a very miraculous defeat. The angel of the Lord slew uh, thousands of his troops. And this bulla, this little insignia, says, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Notice it's dark. It's been burned. You know, Jerusalem's been burned over and built and burned over and built for the last 3,000 years. Or how about King Ahaz? Here's his bulla little seal impression. It says, Belonging to Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah. Another one of uh, Judean king's signature right here. In fact, on this one, you see the fingerprint to the left. We don't know whose fingerprint that might be, but it gives a very personal touch to a biblical figure we know existed. Or how about that lovely and sweet lady Jezebel? (laughs) You want her as your neighbor, don't you? Look at her seal. It's missing a Lamed, the Hebrew Lamed letter, the Aleph on top, but yet the Yod, the Z, the Bet, and the Lamed or the L, which spells Jezebel, dates to the 9th century. This was unearthed uh, by the uh, Oriental Institute of Chicago at at Samaria in the middle of Israel where she had her palace along with her lovely husband Ahab. How about King Uzziah? Remember the text in Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, we saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the angels start crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Well, what Uzziah could not do, that is, blend the priestly with the kingly office, Christ would do. That's why I think Isaiah mentions Uzziah in Isaiah chapter 6 there as a connecting person. But this burial plaque of King Uzziah was found on the Mount of Olives. And it reads, notice, 
to this place were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. I love the ending. Do not open. Wonder why. (laughs) He had leprosy. Nobody wanted to contract leprosy, most likely. But it gives a very historically appropriate context to the inscription here. We know King Uzziah uh, lived. We know he was a real king. The silver bowl of Artaxerxes I, 5th century BC. Now, this is on display at the British Museum in the UK. And notice it lists various kings, biblical figures like Artaxerxes I, Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, chapter 1, Ezra 7 and 8, Haggai and Zechariah mention him as well. And around the top of the bowl, there's a very tiny inscription that rings the whole bowl. Notice what it says. Artaxerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries, son of Xerxes, the king, of Xerxes, who was the son of Darius, the king, the Achaemenian, in whose house this silver drinking cup was made. Look at all the biblical kings they're mentioning. Xerxes, Darius, Artaxerxes. They always made their own table dressing. Uh, They wanted their own cups and utensils. Or how about King Jehoiachim, the last king of of, uh, Israel? Babylon came back and was disgusted with the rulership in Israel, destroyed the temple in 586, and took captives back to Babylon. King Jehoiachin and his family was one of those captives. They found this royal government, whoops, this royal government document written in cuneiform, and it mentions Jehoiachin and his family and how much rations they were given. It says that he was given 10 silah of oil to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and to the sons of the king. Biblical history is alive. Biblical history has been preserved in these artifacts. It gives you much boldness to go out and share the faith, knowing you can have confidence in this book as the word of God without error. Notice the Old Testament figures, the people of the Old Testament. How many have been supported through archaeology and history? We know that they are real historical personages. This is a partial list as well. Or how about the Upawur papyrus? Now, this is a magnificent find. This is a 13th century B.C. papyrus with Egyptian script on it. Now, what happened between the 15th and the 13th century in Egypt? The... Exodus. Whether you take the early date or the late date is inconsequential. The date of this manuscript here, for the purposes of this manuscript, is the 13th century, and it works with either date of the Exodus. Notice what it says. It was discovered in 1828, and why has it been buried for this long? Notice what this says when you compare it to the Exodus plagues. The papyrus says, written by an Egyptian, the plague is throughout the land. The river is blood, groaning throughout the land, fire mingled with hail. I mean, how many times does that happen in your lifetime? I mean, wouldn't they be confused? I mean, should I get my bathing suit or should I get my snow parka? I mean, fire mingled with hail, you know. You'd remember that if that occurred to you. Trees and herbs are destroyed. Darkness in the land. He who is placing his brother in the ground is everywhere. What that might be referring to? The death of the firstborn. Notice the animals weep and the cattle moan. All these are attested in the book of Exodus. The cattle are left astray in the field. This has to be more than coincidence. 
How many times has all this stuff happened at one time in history in Egypt with a manuscript dating to the 13th century B.C.? Now, the liberal critics will say, oh, this is just a reflection of the chaos in the early kingdom of Egypt. We're like, what? What? Where did you get that? You have a 13th century manuscript. There is no basis on which to say this goes back to the 20th, you know, 21st century B.C. to the the craziness of of the early kingdom and so forth. Uh, there is no proof. They just assert that. Is the Bible mythical? Well, certainly not. Near Eastern scholars have given us some formulas to use to refute the notion that the Bible is myth. Notice D.J. Wiseman. I mentioned him several times. He's, he's really good. He said, and many other Near Eastern scholars, including C.S. Lewis, who was a myth writer, he knew myth. But he wasn't a Near Eastern scholar, but he knew myth. DJ says history can become myth. History can become myth. The fish that you caught at the river that was this big can in 20 years become that huge swordfish that you caught at the river, right? History can become mythologized. It's a fact. We see that in the record. We also see that a myth that begins can become more mythological over time. You know, your story is fabricated here, and then your story is just blown out of proportion over here, just way gone. Okay, that can happen, and that's what scholars see. But what we do not see, and this has the key bearing on the scripture, not being myth, is myth never becomes more historical. Myth never becomes more simple, more believable, and more natural over time. You have a book written, Genesis here, that has been attacked like no other book. It cannot be attached to any earlier myth. We know that because of the cycle of myth. If this was attached to myth, it would be more mythological than the early myth. We know that for a fact. But it's not. It's more simple, believable, and natural accounts. Instead of the book of Genesis saying there was a battle between the gods and one eyeball formed the Euphrates River and the other arm formed China and Uzbekistan. You know, that's myth. Okay? God created the heavens and the earth is is not a mythological statement. It doesn't ring like myth, according to C.S. Lewis and D.J. Wiseman and some of the others. Because it is very simple, natural, and believable. So they can't tie it to any earlier myth tradition. They're having a big problem trying to sort this out right now. It is an independent tradition directly from God to Moses. And he wrote it down. Now let's take a look at a few things in the New Testament with the uh, ten minutes we have left. Temple Mount. Was there a temple there? There's nothing there now. It's all, thrown in, it's all thrown in piles over the edge of the retaining walls. You know, How many of you have been to Israel? Okay, great. Good. And you see that pile of rocks down beneath the Temple Mount behind in the Davidson Museum? Those are all from the Romans being tossed down there. They're piled one upon another. Jesus' prophecy of Matthew 24 was fulfilled. There is not one building left, one stone left upon another on the top of the Temple Mount. Everything there is after the fact. The retaining walls are still there, but the buildings are gone. Was there ever a Solomonic or Herodian temple there? 
Lean Rittmeyer has proposed and confidently asserted, yes, there was, along with many others. Lean Rittmeyer has proposed a, a uh, archaeological evidence that proves there was a Temple Mount standing there. Now, Lean Rittmeyer is the person who worked with Benjamin Mazar during 1967 to 1975 or so to excavate all around that southwestern corner of the Temple Mount. When you go to see the Davidson Museum, that's a work of Lean Rittmeyer and Benjamin Mazar. Well, Lean Rittmeyer has analyzed the rock, the tip of Mount Moriah, underneath the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is that gold dome right there. Underneath it is the tip of Mount Moriah. Notice he's looked at the rock. This is a downward view, looking down straight upon the rock. And he has noticed marks, archaeological marks, that validate a Herodian and Solomon temple there. Notice he has discovered trenches to hold up the building or the Holy of Holies. They're on top of the, of the rock. Those are trenches at the bottom of the screen and where the arrows are pointing. Not only that, the Bible says that there was a special place that was prepared for the ark within the Holy of Holies. That special place he believes he has found. Right smack dab in the middle of the Holy Holies. You don't put an ark on the top of a mountain because it'll just slide off. You know, it, it, there goes God, you know, down the, the, the side of the mountain. You've got to get that back up there, you know. Um, so you prepare a special place for the ark. You get the trenches built so you can build a building on top of a mountain that won't fall over. But powerful testimony. There was actually, there's Herodian remnants all around the outside with triple gates and stairways and, and foundational buildings and so forth. We know there was a temple mount. How about Pontius Pilate? Responsible for crucifying Jesus under the Roman Empire in Judea. We found this stone at Caesarea on the coast of Israel. It says, Tiberium Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Notice his rank, his area of rule, Judea. His, he was governor or prefect. His full name under Caesar Tiberium. How about Herod? Is he a real figure? Sure, King Herod was real. We found his wine jug. I had a feeling he, he spent a lot of time with this jug. <laughs> Herod, king of Judea. It says his name, his title as king, and the area of his reign. That's a lot of detail. But notice it's written in Latin. It's not in Aramaic. It's not in Greek. It's not in Hebrew. It's in Latin. Why? Because he imported his wine from Italy. He liked Italian wine. Notice the date the wine was made, the kind of wine, and King Herod. Right there. This was found in Masada. Many of you have been to Masada. It was found by Ehud Netzer in 1996. Or how about the Herodium, a city that was built by Herod himself and his slave labor? The inside of this volcanic-looking cone here is a city, and all that dirt that's along the side there was all brought in by hand to make this mound. It's almost an impregnable fortress. You can't get a battering ram up that steep slope, level it out, and then start mashing the walls. Okay, This was uh, one of Herod's amazing architectural genius ideas here. Um, and then we have his tomb that was discovered just recently, about three to four years ago. Ehud Netzer, same person who found the wine jug, found Herod's tomb right there at the Herodium. It was an ornate tomb. Uh, it had uh, blossoms, ro- rose petals, almond bl- buds. Uh, notice the detail. Uh, Ehud Netzer found the tomb. It was desecrated. 
it was looted, ransacked. Uh, Herod was not a like guy, killed many of his family members, and the people despised him. There's the James ossuary. Now, this is a, an amazing little artifact because it's only about 18 inches wide and about a foot tall. It has an amazing inscription on the side of it right there. You can barely see it. It says, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. We're like going, hmm. Liberals say, too good to be true, forgery. Well, they end up analyzing the inscription And what they had to look at is one very important thing, the patina. The patina is a microbial film that covers an artifact if it sits in a cave for 2,000 years. And if they found that the microbial film or the patina was equally distributed around the box and in the inscription equally without being adjusted or tampered with, then it would prove to be an authentic inscription. But unfortunately, they gave the bone box to the Israeli Antiquities Authority, who's in charge of artifacts there in Israel. They did a partial washing of the box and disturbed the patina. Now there's this big blown out uh, legal court battle going on in Israel today. It's been going on for years. Uh, Who forged this? And is it a forgery? And it's just a mess. A man named Oded Galan had the box sitting in his bathroom in Jerusalem. He didn't even know what he had, he claims. He just had it with the rest of his artifacts, an antiquities dealer. Um, from the research that I've done on it, there's, I don't think there's any reason to reject that this is authentic. There's no reason at all to throw it away. This is, seems to be an authentic inscription. In fact, they might say, oh, it might not belong to Jesus' family. Well, how, what? James had a father named Joseph. How many people named James in Jerusalem? Uh, probably a hundred. But how many people named James with a father named Joseph in Jerusalem? Uh, Probably maybe 20. But how many people named James who had a father named Joseph and a brother named Jesus in Jerusalem? Well, maybe one family, (laughs) one or two. This has got to be uh, the artifact from the tomb of Jesus' family there. Or how about the Megiddo Church inscription that was found? This Greek inscription was found about six years ago in a Megiddo maximum security prison by a prisoner serving out his sentence in this prison. He was digging for a new latrine and recreation center. He stumbles across this mosaic floor with a Greek inscription. They called the archaeologist and they found that the inscription said this, the God-loving Acuptus, that's a female worshiper at the church there, has offered this table to the God Jesus Christ as a memorial. This is the earliest church floor or the earliest church that we have record of in Israel. By the third century, by about 250 to 270, the church had already had an established home within Israel. In fact, this particular church may have even been uh, adjoined to a Roman garrison. That means it made its inroads into the Roman military at the time as well. Notice there's the inscription right there. has a line over it. We underline when we want to emphasize. They overlined when they wanted to emphasize. The God, Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't made into a God. He was worshipped as God from the beginning. Some almost a dozen times in the Gospels, Jesus was worshipped as God. And Jesus never rebuked them. Never once rebuked them. Always received the worship. Jesus is God. How about Caiaphas? Remember the high priest that turned um, Jesus over to Pilate? 
they found his family tomb in 1990 in South Jerusalem. Notice with his name on it and the bones of a 60-year-old man inside. Joseph, son of Caiaphas. There was another ossuary that they found. Notice this ornate fit for a high priest ossuary. Very rich uh, family there in Jerusalem. Intact. Caiaphas was indeed historical personage. Or Jacob's well. They're starting to build a church over this well. In fact, when you read John chapter 4, you find that the well was deep, the woman of Samaria said. You have nothing to draw with. Well, this happens to be one of the deepest wells in Israel, and it's still producing clean, fresh water. Amazing, amazing find. Or the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus healed the lame man has been found. 38 years that man sat in a lame condition. Jesus meets up with him at this moment in time, John 5, at this pool, and heals him and tells him to rise up, take your bed, and go home. Make no provision to come back here anymore, in other words. It's right by the Sheep Gate, where the Bible in John 5 says it was. Or the Pool of Siloam that was discovered only four years ago in Jerusalem by accident. They were laying laying a sewer pipe, and the tractor hits the pipe and uncovers some Herodian stones. And they find out that it was the Pool of Siloam. They excavated three tiers of five stone steps all the way down to the base of the pool. And on the side there, we see the bushes. That's owned by the Greek Orthodox Church, and they're negotiating rights now to uh, ultimately dig at that point and make this a full-fledged tourist attraction. But you can go. Anybody go there and see the Pool of Bethesda or uh, Siloam yet? Good, good. I encourage you. Great John 9 study on those steps there. Fantastic. Jesus healed the man born blind. Clay and spittle. Or Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17. Paul went to Athens, the intellectual center of the world, and gave them a sermon on the unknown God. He had many converts at the end. A woman named Damaris and many with her came to the Lord. It's amazing. They know where the Areopagus sat. Mars Hill. Or Sergius Paulus, Paul's first Roman convert there on the island of Cyprus. His first missionary journey, he goes to Cyprus. This is his very first soul he won to the Lord on that journey. It's an amazing. His name is in stone. He found another one with Sergius Paulus in it in Rome. We know he was a real person. Romans loved him. Or how about Erastus, Paul's traveling companion? He was the curator of public buildings in Corinth. We know this because there's a sidewalk with his name on it and the thanksgiving he gave to the people uh, for voting him in uh, ultimately to office. Polytarch inscription, this is another one where the liberal had to change their views. They had to say, okay, Luke was right, we're wrong again, ultimately. It was amazing. Luke called the rulers there polytarchs, and the liberals said, no, we don't have any record of polytarchs being called at Thessalonica there for the rulers. Well, they dug up 19 of 32 polytarch inscriptions at Thessalonica. Three of them dated to the first century. Luke was right. Polytarco in the Greek there, the liberals were wrong again. There's many more of these I can go over with you. There's all kinds of vocabulary issues. There's uh, the exactness of Luke as a historian. There's coinage that was found. There you can reconstruct the whole life of Christ uh, without even opening your Bible through the archaeological and historical evidence. Uh, William F. Albright, Edwin Yamauchi at the University of Miami in Ohio all confirm the Bible is reliable. And just in closing, remember, we don't have to 
shy away. We don't have to protect our reputation. We don't have to do anything but share Christ. The Spirit will do the rest. Trust this book. Forget your reputation. Trust the book. It'll bear you out in the end. There's so much. If you throw away this book, you'd have to throw away all of ancient literature. Why? Because this book has the most support and testimony validating its historical nature and accuracy of copying than any other book from ancient history. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your goodness and your mercy. We ask that you would just bless us as we go forth from here knowing that your Bible is reliable and that our testimony will be used by you. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.